your Bibles, go with me to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. I want to ask this question to begin with. How does God change us? How does God change us? I have two thoughts about that initially. One is I don't know if too many other uh, so fundamental questions to ask. This is a question that we seek to answer in our DNA gatherings all the time. We seek to answer and to live this out. You see, if that's the purpose of our DNA gatherings, then you don't really ever move on from that. You don't graduate on to something different. Uh, I know in our minds, when we think about churches and how churches do things, we think about programs and stepping stones. You move from one program to the next, to the next, to the next. And Listen, the program that God has designed for you to move from one step to the next is from one degree of glory to the next. So, if you want to call that degree of glory 201 to degree of glory 301 to degree of glory 401, then that's fine. But how do we, how does God change us? And that's something that we never move on from. How does God change us? We don't ever move on from that. And it's not some unimportant question. It's a very fundamental question to our Christian lives. I want to begin in Jonah chapter 1. I'm not going to read the whole thing initially. We'll just read it as we go. I want to read to you the first two verses. It says this, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You know, we all have this tendency to downplay reality. Oh, oh, we certainly have this tendency that when it benefits us to overplay reality, we certainly do with hyperbole and exaggeration and when it seems convenient. But for the most part, when it comes to our true condition and what's really going on inside of us, we have this tendency to downplay it. See, Jonah seems to be very euphemistic at this point. What I mean is he's downplaying the reality of what has happened. Now he does it just for a moment, but nevertheless, don't miss it. Jonah says, I was in distress when I called out to the Lord. But think about this. Is the word distress the greatest or the most accurate term for what's going on in Jonah's life. Certainly, Jonah is in distress. It's not a lie that Jonah is saying. But is it an accurate representation of what is actually happening in Jonah's life? No, it's not. He's not just in distress. Jonah's in rebellion. He's headed towards destruction. Now, I don't know about you, but that versus distress, right? There's a difference, right? Distress is kind of 
trouble like here, like kind of the troubles brewing here, headed towards destruction, the trouble's way up here, right? They're both in the same vein. They're both talking about issues or troubles. But Jonah was in much more than just distress. Jonah was in rebellion. I want to point out to us very practically, right here from the very beginning, a couple ways that we downplay reality. The first one is this. We downplay reality when we say, oh, you know, it's not really as bad as you think. Anybody ever say that? It's not really as bad as... Uh, that's, that's probably right in the vocabulary, most of our self-talk, when we're working through our true condition. I wasn't angry. How, how many of you said this? I wasn't angry. I was just frustrated. Listen, frustration is just a nice way of saying you were angry. Helps you feel better about your anger. It wasn't that bad. Or I, was impa- I wasn't impatient. I was just being firm. I've said that to my children, well, to myself, concerning an issue with my children. Or, you know, how about this? My response wouldn't have been so sinful if that other person hadn't done what they did. You know, it wouldn't have been as bad if it wasn't for this. So we downplay reality when we pretend, try to convince ourselves that it's not as bad as we think. Second way we downplay our condition is when we only look at the pragmatics of the situation. We downplay our condition. Let me flesh this one out just the same. This is how our culture is driven. We don't want to gaze on truth because in our culture we've rejected truth. All we want as a culture is just give me practical steps. There is no truth to actually gaze on. And when we think about truth as Christians, one of the things we know is that our true condition is one of a sinful nature. But we don't want to embrace that. So what we say, just like the culture says, just give me the practical steps to fix this issue. Now, here's my question. What could be any more practical then looking at what you're believing wrongly, repenting for it, and embracing the truth. What could be more practical than that? Nothing. Nothing could be more practical than that. What's impractical is us trying to fix the problem by just masking the symptoms instead of getting to what's causing the issue. That's impractical. But our world says we've got to float up there because we can't handle what's going on down here. So what they do, we reject truth. That's what our culture has done. So we have this tendency where when either given help for the soul or even asking for help for the soul, that we want to just stay on the surface. Just give me the practical steps. i make another comment here that we are often not changed because we don't get the diagnosis correct. We're often not changed. So how does God change us? Well, I'm kind of giving the inverse or the opposite of this. We're not changed often because we don't get the diagnosis correct. We tend to approach Christianity like it's Tylenol. Let me explain. Something is giving me a headache, right? 
And so what do we do? We just go take Tylenol. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I usually get like one headache a month. That's usually my headache. I mean, some of you guys get headaches every day. I, you know, I get a headache once a month. I go take Tylenol. It helps. But we treat, here's, what, here's what's the issue. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with taking Tylenol, but here's the issue. We treat the symptom often only to return time after time after time to continue treating the symptom. So we treat Christianity like this. We have issues in our life. We have sin. We have struggle. We have depression. We have anxiety. Whatever the case is. And we, we just kind of treat our walk with Jesus like this. Like we just go to Christ like he's Tylenol to fix something in us temporarily. Only to return with the same issue tomorrow, the next day, three decades later, whatever it may be. You see, whatever flows, listen, whatever flows out of our hearts, this is fundamental biblical understanding of man. Whatever flows out of our hearts via emotions and actions is simply the symptom. What's in the heart is the problem. Jesus says, out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So how do you change language? How do you change language in yourself? How do you change language that's cynical or condemning? How do you change language that is hyperbolic and sarcastic? You don't just study books on how to talk, although that might be helpful at some point in the venture, but you've got to figure out why it's coming out, where it's coming from. And what happens, though, is when we fail to pursue, listen, the correct diagnosis, we are making light of the reality because we're not embracing the reality. And when that happens, when we just try to fix things on the surface instead of seeing God fix them His way, we are settling for trying to fix the problems ourselves. I would contend that our refusal to go to the heart and just fix things on the surface is an attempt of ourselves to rescue ourselves. And this is what Jonah did. Jonah, listen, Jonah knew something was wrong, right? He's not that dumb. He knows something is wrong. He's just justifying it away instead of dealing with what's going on inside. I'll fix the problem. Jonah tries to rescue his own life. So Jonah worked hard, right? Because this is what happens then. When we, when we try to not do it God's way and we try to do it our way, then it requires lots of work and we're willing to put lots of work into it, right? Because what's at stake? Our glory, our comfort, our self-righteousness. So we put all this effort into it. Jonah does the same thing. He fled from God. He found a ship. He tried to hide his guilt. He tried to stay afloat in the water as we see in chapter 2. But what's the text say? I mean, the, the literature here in Jonah is fantastic. Go back and read it. But listen, just very briefly, what's it say? He went down. But down Jonah went. He went down to Joppa. He went down into the boat. He went down into the inner part of the ship. He lay down to sleep. In the, in the prayer here, it talks about him going down to the root of the mountains. What's he talking about? Like to the ocean floor. 
he goes down. He tries to rescue himself, but down he goes. You see, God allowed Jonah to hit the bottom before he sent the fish. You see, once Jonah's strength was gone, once he was helpless, God sent the fish. And it's at the bottom that something happens. We're asking this question this morning. How does God change us? I'm going to give you multiple words as you see in your notes there with a statement that follows. How does God change us? Let's read on in chapter, in chapter 2, verse 3. It says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. The first step, if you will, in how God changes us is in a, an awakening. Like an awakening has to take place. Now listen, this can be applied in both cases. Both to someone who is coming to faith in Christ for the very first time. But primarily the, the, it, the, the concern here is for those who are already redeemed. How does God change them? Okay? But the process is really the same. But right now we're talking about, how because right, right, who is Jonah? Jonah is a follower of God. So how is God changing Jonah? That has lots of parallel for you and I. The first step is an awakening. Own your true condition. Own your true condition. This awakening helps us to own our true condition. Now you say, uh, I, I get it. Many of you are looking at me going, oh, well, Matt, I know we're sinners. Like, I get that. Like, I know I'm dreadfully sinful, that I can choose no good apart from God. Okay. I know we all like say that, right? But daily, when you're working through an issue, a sin, a struggle, whatever it is, when someone approaches you for sin in your life, do you actually believe that? Does it make sense? Because if you don't believe that, you're going to be defensive. If you don't believe that, if you're not owning your true condition in that moment, then you're going to seek to fix it on the surface like it's a symptom instead of a heart issue. So we need this awakening. Let's talk about this a little further. Let me give you an imperative as like kind of a, a sub-imperative. Find the end of your self-sufficiency. Find the end of your self-sufficiency. And find it quick. Here's the question. So Jonah is being brought down, 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 down to the end of his self-sufficiency. Here's the question. Does it really have to be that hard? I mean, think about what's happening to Jonah. He's floating in the sea, sinking to the ocean floor. Does it have to be that hard? It did for Jonah. Listen, one person I read this week said, resentment towards God had formed a hard capsule around Jonah's heart. Now think about this. As a prophet, listen, as a prophet of God, directly hearing from God, speaking for God, he was able to subsequently directly disobey God. That's crazy. 
That's amazing. Here, a man of God hearing the word of God and then doing completely the opposite. I mean, listen, if, if, if we're humble, this should spark a measure of fear in our lives. Every single one of us. That I could hear the very words of God and reject them to his face. Place the measure of fear over me this week. In ministry and pastoring and being in a church, I've noticed that the very ones who don't think this would ever happen to them are the very ones that it oftentimes does. What happens is those people build resentment towards God. But usually that resentment towards God isn't clear on this plane. It's usually clear on this plane. And through this resentment, able to justify whatever they want to do. This is Jonah. So yes, for many people, it does have to be that hard. You say, does my journey to the end of myself have to be so hard? Does it have to be so hard? It hurts. It hurts my emotions. It hurts my heart. It hurts my body. It hurts my mind. Why does it have to be so hard? Does it have to hurt this bad? Does the road to the end of myself have to be so bad? Does it have to be so lonely? Does it have to take this many years? If God is gracious, it will. Listen, Jonah was a prophet of God, and it took this hard of a road. How much more for you and I? So does it have to be this hard? Yeah, sometimes it does. Does it have to be this painful? Sometimes it does. Could it be that you need to come to the end of yourself? Could you be Jonah? Could you be living like Jonah right now? Could you be spiraling to the bottom of your self-sufficiency on a boat headed for Tarshish. Now listen, you could be in a major way, like a all like kind of whole life encompassing way, or it could be that you're in this boat. I guarantee you all of us are at least in this boat in a minor way every day. Where God is having to by by his mercy and grace take us to the end of ourselves. I mean, what's the alternative? Sufficiency in self and an eternity away from God. That's the alternative. God is merciful to rescue us from that. So could it be that you need to come to the end of your self? A second point of application is this. Could it be that you're keeping someone else afloat who needs to hit the bottom? Could there be a Jonah in your life 
that the way you interact with them, they feel affirmed in their running from God. Think about that we say in the song, The Prodigal. Think about the, the story of the prodigal. God, the, the, the father, doesn't hold him back. Go. He even gives him the inheritance. Why? Well, I think because the father knows that the son's going to hit destruction and the end of himself. You see, what the father knew is that the son needed to hit the bottom. He needed to spiral down. So I ask you, could it be that you're keeping someone else afloat who needs to hit the bottom? Listen, God is gracious in sending Jonah to the deepest, darkest moments of his life. God is gracious to do this. It is here, because well, it is here that Jonah's change begins to happen. So, yes, does it have to be this hard? Sometimes it does. I'm thankful we have a God who is all wise and all loving and knows exactly when and exactly how far and exactly how to accomplish what is good for us and for His glory. So yes, it does have to be this hard. The second thing I want you to notice is that spiritual decline often happens so slowly that you hardly notice it. Right? This, this decline, this downward spiral of life. If we're talking about owning our true condition, noticing that our true condition and the hardening of our hearts and, and our downward spiral oftentimes comes without us even noticing it. Someone said this, worship becomes remote, prayer becomes repetitive, the Lord's table, meaning communion, becomes a habit, hearing the word becomes routine, and your Christian life runs as if on autopilot, you are no longer engaged. Listen, uh, listen, listen to the way he's describing that, like, this person is doing all the right things, and if you were ad- ad- just observing this person, you would say, this is a super spiritual person, wouldn't you? Right? You would look at this person. They're doing all the right things. This is a super spiritual person. This is someone who's growing in the Lord. I would ask you this question, though. He, he goes on. He lists some indicators that spiritual decline is happening even in the midst of worship happening, prayer happening, Lord's table happening, right? They're doing all the right things. But what are some indicators that spiritual decline is still happening? One of them's pride. Are they prideful? Cynical? Is the resentment? Bitterness? Unbelief? Distrust? And the last one on his list, anger. Are these things there? If they're there, particularly like a, to a, a deep extent, then just because worship is appearing, prayer is appearing, Lord's table, you're partaking, 
you could still be in spiritual decline. Listen, these things like cynicism and resentment and bitterness and unbelief and distrust and anger, that these, these things may not be consciously floating from your mind towards other people, or towards God rather, but they will be very noticeable horizontally. Again, right, because we, we work this relationship out in this direction, largely. So is there cynicism? Is there resentment? Is there bitterness? Is there unbelief, distrust, anger, pride? See, spiritual decline happens without you even noticing. Hopefully, maybe someone, just someone in this room awakens to, wow, maybe that's where I'm at. Maybe that's where I'm at. The next observation is that, and and this is going to, you see the, this in Jonah's life. Listen, resentment often builds as heat increases. Bitterness, resentment, these kind of things, cynicism, often build. Like they, it grows like a weed when heat incre- increases. It would seem natural for Jonah's resentment to increase as God turned up the heat on his life. Someone said this, traumatic experiences often lead to long-term resentments. Let me ask you this question. Do you ever find yourself resenting or becoming bitter, maybe even angry, towards someone whom God is using to turn up the heat in your life? Let me give you three kind of examples of what I mean by that. Because God is using this storm to turn up this heat in Jonah's life. We're going to watch how Jonah responds. But for us, for a few moments, three examples of how God might use someone on this plane to increase the heat that could lead to resentment. First one is this. Maybe it's a church leader, a pastor, DNA leader, who is trying to help you own sin and live faithfully, but you just can't see it as that. Instead, you see it as attacking or they're just out to get you. I've seen this too many times. What happens? Resentment, bitterness, unbelief, anger, distrust. These things happen. Listen, you know you can't get angry at God. So what do you do? You blame it on other people. A second example, maybe the heat is being turned up by someone who has indeed wronged you. Maybe they've treated you poorly or said unkind things to you or about you. How does your resentment, what happens there? Does it grow for, towards God? Why are you doing this to me, God? Or does it grow towards that person? Or maybe, here's a third example, maybe God's applying heat to you through a person that doesn't even realize <laughs> that they're doing it. Right? Maybe they're just, they're just trying to live life and ignorant of the fact that what they do is applying heat in your life. Do you grow in resentment towards that person? 
Listen, some people see their lives as kind of three different things here, someone said. A series of random chances. Some people see their lives as they're in control, and they see themselves as heroes if things go well and failures if they go badly. And some people see their lives as events controlled by other people, and they feel that they are the victims to these people. But watch what happens with Jonah. Jonah's resentment doesn't go up, even though that seems to be the most natural response. What does he say in this very passage? Look at verse 3. Watch, look at the pronouns. For you cast me into the deep. What? Who cast, who threw Jonah into the ocean? Who threw him into the sea? Who threw him? Say it. The sailors did. Who's Jonah say threw him in? God. Read on. Into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All whose waves? Your waves. Whose billows? Your billows. Who does he blame? Now, now, now listen, I want to be careful because he's not, like, it's not him going, oh, God, you did this to me. It's him going, you did this to me. And as we'll see later, I deserved it. You were right in doing this. The sailors threw him over, but he says, you threw me over. See, see Jonah's resentment doesn't go up. Indeed, he ascribes and recognizes that it was God who had taken him into the water. You see, in this awakening, in this coming to realize and owning what was going on, Jonah becomes aware, hear me clearly, of God laying a hold of his life. So how does this awakening, what does that look like in owning your sin? It's recognizing and seeing and believing God laying a hold of your life. It's so easy to go every day, multiple times a day, and whatever heat is applied to our lives, and we just keep looking this way, instead of looking this way and seeing that God is laying a hold of the deepest parts of my heart through this situation on this plane. And He does that every time. You see, part of how God changes us is becoming aware that that's what God does. That's how He works. He has a hold of all that happens on this plane, and He works them all to change us. You see, too many of us spend way too much time looking just horizontally. This person did this to me, or, or this person did that. Understand that that person did nothing outside of God's meticulous sovereignty. Not a word came out of that person's mouth. That was not a part of God's plan. Not a pain entered your body that wasn't a part of God's plan. Not a series of any events whatsoever has happened that was not a part of God's plan. Now listen, this doesn't make the actions right or the actions not needing of justice. But nevertheless, it's still God 
laying hold of your life. But here's what this does happen. You may not be able to deal with the justice that might need to be served. Maybe that's a different person's place or God's way is going to handle that in a different way. But what you can do in the moment is work on your heart and God. You see, living communion with God in which He is real, alive, fresh, and present to your soul, that energizes a God-centered life. Jonah had lost this. He'd lost it. And many of us have lost it. Or we lose it frequently. Listen, Jonah had become so such a discontented believer that he pursued his own agenda for his life. But under the force of the pounding waves, his soul began to long for God. So what do we need? We need to be awakened to a new sense of our own sin. Like, listen, I, I, don't, I don't care what your experience was yesterday. Like, oh man, I had this like, this, this experience yesterday where like, I just knew that I was a sinner and I needed God. Like, all right, that was yesterday. Today, you need a new sense of your own sin. We need this every day. Listen, as, as Paul Tripp said, if you don't wake up in the morning naming yourself a sinner, you will not live in God's grace for that day. You see, up until this point, Jonah was justifying everything he had done. Let's just kind of think about this for a second. He was justifying everything he had done, quitting his responsibilities. Think about that, right? I mean, it wasn't just Jonah was just kind of doing whatever that he left. No, he quit all of his responsibilities where he was at. He was a leader of God's people, and he quits. Again, justifying everything that he had done. Next, heading for another community seemed reasonable. Justifying everything he had done. Listen, Jonah felt that it was within his rights and would have defended his decision had you or I asked him. But Jonah recognizes, listen, in the water, that God was right to send the storm and crash this water down upon him. He deserved punishment, and Jonah knew it part of this awakening, awakening to what's going on in his heart and what God is doing with it. You see, a child of God awakened to their sin will move subsequently toward confession. In this moment, Jonah, in this prayer, we see him begin to confess. Right? He's awakened to the reality and then he begins to confess. And instead of, listen, you have to see, hear this. Instead of excusing himself, instead of evading the issue, he begins to own his true condition. Look at verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall, look, I shall again look upon your holy temple. 
The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, but yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. So first, awaken, awakening to this, uh, the reality and owning our sin. The second is this, believing. Battle for faith in Jesus Christ. Battle for faith in Jesus Christ. Believing. Awaken. Believing. Let me talk to you for a moment. True awareness of sin oftentimes brings despair. I don't know about you, but it's a reality in my life sometimes. Notice the language. Notice the language. Earlier it was, I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord, right? Beginning of Jonah. I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord. What is it now? I am driven from the presence of the Lord. Listen, when one experiences the weight of his own sin and sees its consequences, darkness can set in and hope can quickly dissipate. And God can seem very far away. Is that you? I mean, honestly, I, I hope all of us at least experience the edge of despair over our sin. If not, then we not, we're not grasping the reality of it. But here's what happens, though. Change continues to occur when the awakened person believes. You see, the act of faith is a turn toward God, right? The act of faith is a turn toward God. Notice what Jonah says next. I stopped at, I'm driven away from your sight. What's he say next? Yet I shall look, I again look upon your holy temple. What is Jonah saying, right? He's at the edge of despair. He says, yet I will look to your holy temple temple listen this is happening in the water prior to the fish in the desperate of desperate situations as the seaweeds wrapped around his head what did he have he had hope in his heart he had faith you see faith prevails over despair when and only when you fix your eyes on the grace of God rather than your own failure. If you fix your eyes on your own failure, you will try to be your own savior. But if you fix your eyes on Christ instead of your own failure, you will let Him be your savior. So encouraged. I struggled with some depression by the end of 2016, and I know maybe some of that's news to some of you, but uh, just kind of hit me hard. And working through that, I read 
a book called When the Darkness Will Not Lift, a real short booklet by John Piper. And in there, multiple pages really ministered to my soul. One in particular was this. Philippians 3.2, he says, Paul says this, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ has what? Anybody know what that says? Has made me his own. He's made me his own. For those of you who struggle with despair, particularly in the face of your own sin, it's absolutely crucial that you see Paul's point in this passage. Absolutely crucial. He says, Christ has made me his own. This is the why. This is the how. You see, all our efforts at grasping for error, at grasping for joy, at grasping for life outside of despair, anxiety, depression, are secured by what? Not your grasping of anything, but by Jesus' grasp of you. Piper says this, and I quote, Our faith rises and falls. It has degrees. But our security does not rise and fall. It has no degrees. We must persevere in faith. That's true. But there are times when our faith is what? The size of a what? A mustard seed. And barely visible. In fact... The darkest experience for the child of God is when their own faith sinks out of their own sight. He says this, but listen. (laughs) It's never out of God's sight. Look at Jonah. Jonah's in the, the bottom of the ocean. I'm being driven from your presence. Yet, I will look to your holy temple. See this movement in faith. In verse 7, he says, When my life was fainting away, what's he say? I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. What's this mean? What's it mean? It means at one time I thought about you, but I forgot. At one time I could see you, but then I forgot and I can't see you, and now I can see you. It means faith is not a one-time decision. It's a struggle. It's a fight. It's a war. It's a battle. Someone said this, It is the bond of a living union with Jesus Christ in which you love, trust, and follow Him. And that means that faith will always be in conflict with doubt and unbelief. Always. Every day. He says, I remember you. I remembered the Lord. What is it we remember? At the very core of our being, Romans 5.8 says this, but God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. For us. Listen, this is how God changes us. 
We come to the end of ourselves. We believe in the gospel. And look what happens next in Jonah's life. In his prayer, he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. So I give you awakening, believing, repenting. Release idols and lay a hold of grace. How does God change us, awakens us? By grace, He gives us faith or belief, which leads to repentance. So what idols are you beholding? I know we talk about this all the time. If that gets old to you, uh, you can go to a church that doesn't talk about sin. That's fine. What idols are you beholding? What's got a hold of you that you're willingly subjecting yourself to? He says, what's he mean by pay regard? Right? To give attention to. To give attention to these idols. To, to, to behold them. To be captivated by them is then the effect. And what's he say? What's he say? The second line is so helpful. When you do, you forsake what? The hope of steadfast love. For us, now post-Christ, Romans 5.8 says what? But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paying regard to idols is forsaking your hope in that. You're saying, I have better luck with my hope in these things over here than I do in my blood-bought soul that was purchased by Jesus Christ. You forsake your steadfast love because steadfast love only comes from the one and only true and living God. And what happens is we exchange this steadfast love for some cheap, temporary prostitute. So what idols are you beholding? Now, I want to spend a few moments here talking about how do we, like, how do we understand this repentance, okay? I, I, I know we talk about repentance as a lot as a church. That word comes up a lot. But now's a great moment for me to kind of, kind of just fill in some of that meat around the idea of repentance. First of all, it's this. Repentance is not beating yourself up. Repentance is giving yourself up. Repentance is not beating yourself up. Repentance is giving yourself up. See, repentance is recognizing your true condition and the end of yourself. Right? It's giving up to lean on. Right? It's letting go to grasp a hold. Repentance also involves humble thankfulness. Humble thankfulness. If your heart is not lowered in humility, hear me? If it's not lowered in humility and heightened in gratitude, then repentance hasn't taken place. What's he say in verse 9? But with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. Thirdly, repentance leads to change. Imagine that. Repentance leads to change. Let's think about this for a second. 
Repentance is more than, means more than just confession, but it includes at least confession. Confession is the saying, whether internally or verbally, what I did was wrong, and that dishonored God and was unpleasing to Him and was not good for me and hurt you or whoever. That's confession. Repentance is that and walking, walking that repentance backwards. I told my wife that she got on me for giving the wrong directions on the timeline for you guys. So I'm trying to, right? Repentance is walking it back. So confession is kind of like the beginning of repentance. But repentance means change. It has to change. Something has to change. I don't know how else to put it. It says that Jonah made a commitment. He says, I will do what God has commanded me to do. You see, inside the fish, Jonah makes commitments, makes commitments that reflect his change of heart. Now, with, now without actual actions, right? Without actual change. I would suggest that nothing more than admitting you got caught was all that took place. Change happens. Doesn't mean like you're changed overnight, right? We're talking about a trajectory, like a course of action. Listen, re- confession for the prodigal son happened when he was eating with the pigs. Repentance happened from that point until he walked all the way back home. So repentance leads to change because repentance means you see and feel differently about the situation in your act of repentance means you see differently about it. You see it. You see it more as God sees it. That's what again. That's what. Look at what's happening with Jonah. Right, Jonah's seeing these things different. Now we're going to see uh, uh, Jonah slip back into this. Right, like he's going to sinfully walk back into some of this. But you're going to see some change that happens in Jonah. The last thing I want to tell you about repentance is that repentance is preceded by faith. Repentance is preceded by faith. Faith happens first. I know we we need to help our minds. We tend to think of repentance and faith, repentance and faith. We say them in that order, right? You need repentance and faith, repentance and faith. What are you not believing? Believe the right thing. Okay? I'm not saying that we need to throw that out, but I'm saying we need to be careful that we're not training our minds to think wrongly about this. Repentance is preceded by faith. Someone said this, faith is the bond of a living union with Christ. If God required repentance before you came to faith, you would have to do it in your own power, and you couldn't. Hmm. I know, some of you are like going, oh, whoa, 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 like soteriologically, like my salvation, what are you talking about? Come to faith? But I thought repentance, like, was a part of this coming to faith, right? I had to repent, then I could come to faith in Jesus. And we can chew on that later if you want to, but for right now, I want to propose that we are invited to first come to Christ so that we can change. And repentance is a gift of God. It's from his kindness that we repent. Here's the question, what would you be repenting for if you didn't first believe that forgiveness was a possibility? 
What would you be saying, God, I'm sorry for this, if you didn't actually believe he would forgive you? You wouldn't ask for his forgiveness. And, 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 and faith, right? We live by faith. This is power, strength that comes from God. If you didn't have that, you would be repenting on your own. So who's the one earning salvation at that point? Anyways, repentance, here's the deal. Repentance flows from faith. And faith flows from a spiritual awakening to your own need and to God's glory. Listen, grace makes faith possible. For by grace you have been saved through what? Through repentance? For by grace you've been saved through faith. I know. You're going to go, oh, oh, Matt's going to mess up the gospel. Okay, Calm down. Listen, grace makes faith possible. What faith? Faith faith in what? Faith in the good news of Jesus. Faith in the good news of the gospel. Jesus dying on the cross as the punishment for your sin. So grace makes faith in that possible. And faith produces repentance. Because if you believe Jesus died on the cross for you, What's the natural response to that? Oh, please take all of my sin. Take it all. Please. I can't do this. You did it all. Take it. Repentance. That's what happens. But why do we oftentimes not want to just give it all to God and say, I'm sorry. I'm a failure. I messed up. Please take it. Why? 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 Because we're not living by faith. Because faith precedes that. Because I struggle to believe that Jesus did take it all. That I can give it all to him. So what do I do? I, I try to work on my repentance and take care of these sins and then try to exercise some faith in the process. But grace makes faith possible. And faith in the good news of Jesus produces repentance. Now look at what happens. Repentance produces what? Look in verse 9, the, first, the second part of verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Exclamation point. Worship, gospel change, always leads to Christ's adoration. It always leads to Christ's adoration. Someone said true worship is an overflow of of genuine repentance. And repentance is a result of what? Faith. And faith is a result of what? God's grace. Right? For by grace you've been saved through faith. Not of ourselves, but it's a gift of God. Not a result of works as so much to boast, right? Some of you struggle to genuinely and wholly worship God because repentance is still a strange concept. And if repentance is a strange, con- strange concept to you, then so is faith. And if faith is a strange concept to you, so is God's grace. See where this tracks back to? If you struggle to worship genuinely and adore Christ, you struggle with repentance. If you struggle with repentance, you struggle with faith. If you struggle with faith, you struggle with the grace of God. And why would you ever struggle with the grace of God? Because you don't think you need it. 
Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's amazing. He's in, <laughs> he's in the ocean. He's in a fish. Repentance is a change in my heart that changes the direction of my heart. Right? Repentance is a change in my heart that changes the direction of my heart. Paul Tripp very helpfully says, if you don't love and adore and appreciate Jesus more in your act of repentance, then your repentance has nothing more to do, has nothing to do with Christ and has everything to do with you trying to save yourself. See, true repentance changes the direction of my heart. Now, just because Jonah worships God in this moment doesn't mean the war is over, though, right? It doesn't mean that, all right, all is going to be well. He will totally be satisfied in Jesus and, well, in the Lord at this point because, you know, Jesus is not revealed yet, but in Jesus, future-looking, future-looking. But it doesn't mean the war is over. Repentance isn't a one-time thing. Salvation doesn't mean, your salvation doesn't mean that the war for your heart is over. Instead, your salvation actually cranks up the heat of the war. You want to come to Jesus? Guess what? It's going to be really hard. Like, not the actually, uh, you know, Re, like the where he saves you, like he he took care of all that. But this battle for faith, that's gonna be hard. It's gonna be hard right now. One of my most enjoyable times. This is off script. Uh, most enjoyable times of presenting the gospel was, and I hope I don't embarrass him now, but was with Anthony uh, in my office, and we went to. Uh, I can't remember the passage. Is it Luke 14 where Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me? And um, Like to say to him across the table, listen, if you want to follow Jesus, it's going to be hard. It's just going to be hard. This is what Jesus says. Consider the cost. I mean, how many of us present the gospel? I'm not saying that that is the way you should do it every single time, but I'm saying that's the way Jesus did it. <laughs> we'll come to Jesus. Oh, great, come to my church. We'll, we'll love on you, and we'll baptize you, and you can go to heaven, and he'll pay for this, your sin. And Jesus says, if you want to come follow me, it's going to be hard. It's going to be a battle. Consider the cost. Again, I'm not saying that's the way you always need to present the gospel. My point is this, is that the war is not over. Your salvation cranks up the heat of this war. Now, up until this point, so far, let me give a narration for a second. Up until this point, all of our conversation has been pushing you to look inward, right? To examine your walk with the Lord. And if we're not careful, we'll miss the point. If we're not careful, we'll miss the point, particularly of chapter 2. But I would, I would argue the point of the Scriptures. God didn't save Jonah. Like, just Jonah. God didn't change Jonah's heart. God didn't lead him to repentance just to have precious Jonah back in right relationship. Certainly God does. Like, certainly God loves Jonah. Certainly God cares about Jonah. Certainly God demonstrates his love for Jonah. But God's dream, God's plan, God's vision is so much bigger than Jonah. 
God's worldview, if you will, God's desire is so much bigger than Jonah, and God's plan is so much bigger than just you and me. Why did God save Jonah? Of course, it's because he loved Jonah. Absolutely, I'm not denying that. But more importantly, God saved Jonah because God loves the nations. Because God loves for His glory to be displayed throughout the earth. Because God desires for His glory to be displayed by your neighbor. See, God didn't save Jonah just to take care of Jonah, although He does. Look at verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. It was fun listening to past week to Paul Tripp talk about this passage. He he calls the fish this uh, redemption submarine. Hey, fish, now you're a redemption submarine or something goofy like that. And and I mean, like the digestive juices, right? Like something has to stop. Like the digestive tract of the fish, like has to like stop at least for these few days, right? And Jonah's sitting inside of this fish. Being rescued, being redeemed, if you will, is the picture being painted for us. And, and then he says, you're no longer a redemption submarine, you're a fish. And out goes Jonah. You see, mission, gospel change leads to gospel mission. Gospel change leads to gospel mission. It has to, or you miss the point. If gospel change does not lead to gospel mission, then it was probably the change, rather, was probably nothing more than selfish change for the sake of your own glory and self-righteousness. I know, that's a, that's a very harsh statement to make. I get that. But where in Scripture did we ever get this idea that our gospel transformation was even remotely primarily for us? That's not God's vision. That wasn't even his vision in the garden. It was to expand Eden. It was to move the boundary markers out. So why? It was to be fruitful and multiply. Why? So that God's glory would fill the earth. God didn't put Adam and Eve there just to be cool and walk in relationship with him. He he did that, but for the purpose of what? Filling the earth with his glory. Why does God rescue Jonah? To continue that plan of filling the earth with his glory. Through who? The Ninevites. God doesn't work on us. God doesn't put us into the storm and throw us into the ocean and and (laughs) rescue us with a fish and spit us out on dry land just for us to be in a better place. Your gospel change is for the good of not only you, but for the body of Christ. And your gospel change is for the good of the mission of Christ. Listen, God rescues Jonah to be an instrument of his rescue. Like we talked about, rescued people rescue people. Listen, he saved Jonah to do something with Jonah. And he has done the same to you. God has saved you to do something with you. In this body... In this church, he has rescued you to do something with you for the rescue of his children around you. 
in the world, He has rescued you to do something with you for the rescue of the lost around you. Why did God rescue Paul and Peter and James and John and the rest of the disciples? If they didn't catch this vision, none of us would be here. God rescues them for the spread of His glory. I don't know if you know this, but the be fruitful and multiply command of the garden, I think, is paralleled in, Matthew's, or in Matthew 28 when Jesus says, go make disciples, go be fruitful and multiply. In the garden, it was about biological, uh, you know, uh, reproduction. And here it's about spiritual reproduction. God rescues Jonah to be an instrument of his rescue. If you are making your faith only about yourself, we're missing the point. If you're making your personal holiness only for yourself, you're missing the point. Rescued people, rescue people. So listen, in closing here. True gospel change doesn't just lead to someone who sins less. Although it does, right? But true gospel change doesn't simply lead to someone who sins less. If that's all, if that's where your view stops, that's too small. True gospel change leads to someone who proclaims the gospel more. Not just someone who sins less. Now true, you proclaim the gospel more to yourself, right? Because that's how you overcome sin. That's believing, right? And then repentance. You proclaim the gospel more to yourself. But it doesn't stop there. You are saved. God changes you. And someone who truly is changed by the gospel leads to someone who truly proclaims the gospel more. Let me paraphrase the words of Jesus at the end of his ministry. He says, the reason I rescued you and taught you is so that you can go rescue and teach what I have taught you. This is so important that I will be with you to the ends of the earth. I rescued you and taught you so that you would go be instruments of my rescue and teach others. This is how God changes us. He brings us down to the bottom of ourselves and by grace gives us faith to believe in the gospel. Faith produces repentance. Repentance leads to adoration and worship. Like further adoration and worship, right? Because it's the, it's the believing this to be true about God, right, that precedes repentance, that even that is an act of adoration and worship. I believe and I worship Him for these things and then I repent, which leads to greater what? Adoration and worship. And all this leads to what? To mission. To sharing the gospel. Listen, if we have a hard time sharing the gospel, because we're having a hard time worshiping Christ. If we have a hard time worshiping Christ, it's because repentance isn't happening. If we're having a hard time repenting, then it's because our faith is weak. And if our faith is weak, it's because we need God's grace. And if we don't have God's grace, we're in a lot of trouble. But God's children, He gives the grace to, right? That spurs on faith and belief, which brings about repentance and confession, which leads to right worship, 
and adoration, which leads to mission. Gospel change leads to gospel mission. Who are you telling the story of redemption to? Let's pray. Father, help our hearts to lean into the right thing. Have those serving communion come forward. Father, please, as we partake in this communion today, as we partake of the Lord's table, I pray that you would help us to fix our eyes. Fix our eyes. Behold your Son, Jesus. That we would let go of beholding our own image so that we could behold your sons. That we would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Father, we confess to you that this is all hard. It's difficult. We need your grace. We need your grace to give us greater faith. To believe and worship because of this faith. I pray that you would do that. Father, if there's any of us that have, that have, have sin currently in our lives that we're not repenting for, that we're not willing to repent for, that we are harboring in our hearts, that we would first confess that and then partake in the Lord's table. And if we are still yet unwilling to partake, Father, I pray that you would give us the grace to stay in our seats. Father, I pray that most importantly in these next few moments as we partake in the Lord's table that it would spur on our faith. That it would remind us of the gospel work of your son Jesus. That it would remind us that he pays this price for us. That he paid this price for us. This would spur on worship. And would spur on mission. Father, if it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.